0: You're listening to a D.M. podcast.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate, Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season, it's not just us doing the heavy
2: lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season, we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. (laughs) Yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously
1: changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup, And together we'll be turning history back to front and back again. Hi folks and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History and we have a, what did I say, a special guest? A very special guest. One of Australia's most eloquent writers, a bon vivant, a living national treasure,
0: Matt Preston. G'day mate. G'day. I thought you were going to say yourself, there, Mikey. It, it, <laughs> sounded, it sounded pretty, pretty accurate for the description for you. Here's the thing that I, you I, obviously a, a TV personality,
1: but let's get back to it. The start of your career was the, was the written word, and you, yeah. you write some very
0: pretty sentences, mate. Huh? I, I, do, I do like the written word. I do like having time to write the written word, and I do also absolutely obsess about my history. And my last, last book I book, wrote was all about the history of the, the 100 best dishes in the world. And mm. I, I love the fact that, that when you write a, a book about history, you don't know where it's going to be next. You know, that that's something right. else is going to be uncovered or someone's going to find a, a sheaf of papers that, that totally debunks what's said. And that, that is, makes it very exciting. And that's why I love the podcast that you do because it's like what, what we talk about today in six weeks' time could be wrong totally wrong however that. that, that's why Paul's here you know, because, you know
1: it's good it's good to have like a couple of plonkers like me and a real yeah. like, and a real academic yeah, exactly. on a exactly.
2: good day well, that's I'm going to ask you actually Matt with that book on the on the recipes did you find the hardest bit was the ones you you left out because that's what we're always worried about
0: no look i think i think the hardest bit is is working out how far you go with the recipe mm. and, and and what parameters you you know what is a spaghetti bolognese so <laughs> I, I, the, 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 there's your first question okay yeah. it's probably got to have spaghetti yes um the bolognese sauce has got to be mince and it's got to be tomato based they're, they're the rules right there are lots of bolognese ragouts, and so you start drawing it and start looking for the first time you can find that recipe Yeah, and the exciting thing about that although bolognese was being sold in Sydney um, uh, stores in the 30s. The first recipe isn't from Italy. Oh, really? Kind of know that already. Bolognese is a is a is a is a dish from Italian migrants, um, but it's basically the first recipe written comes out of an Adelaide paper in 19 in the 1930s. So way before David wrote it. So that you know we can claim that spaghetti bolognese is an Australian dish, and I love that.
1: <laughs> oh, in fact, uh, one of my favourite when it comes to history dishes, and and we, we will end up in this area as we talk. Yes is a Hong Kong food particularly like Exo sauce uh, yeah. and because um, the thing I love about Exo sauce it's one of those things you think it goes back to the 1800s. Yeah, fir- no no it's uh, 1980s <laughs> right. it, no. It, it,
0: it's, it's named after the brandy and it was kind of a, a, a high end disco food it was, a bit, it was a bit like the Gigi Haddad um, <laughs> disco pasta of its day which again is another yeah. you know, the Gigi Haddad uh, pasta which is cream and vodka and chilli basically references what's known as the disco pasta from the, the early 80s mm, mm. so so I think but that's the whole thing. It's you know, history is a an unfolding flower, isn't it? You you do the more research you do, the deeper you go down do the rabbit you? hole, yes. the more stuff you find. And <laughs> and my favourite is Pavlova. Was it us or was it the Kiwis? kiwi uh, Kiwis got nothing to do with it. Oh right.
1: Oh, that's a brave ki- call. Ki-
0: so the Kiwis cite all these things. There's a New Zealand jelly maker who did a uh, Pavlova jelly. That's not a Pavlova. Pavlova meringue cream fruit on top, right? Mm. Um so they they cite a great book called Um uh, New Zealand home cookery mm. Written by a woman Called Emily Futter mm. Now that's Futter is a name It's a comedy name It's a name hey, you remember <laughs> um, <laughs> did, did, did Futter cook With a lot of butter? Um, <laughs> undoubtedly and That would make you Futter The butter makes you Futter But the whole point About Emily Futter It's a name you don't forget And then right. you go Wait a second So actually In 1924 There was a book mm. Published in Australia Called Australian Home Cookery right. By yeah. Emily Futter And the New Zealand one That they cite As being the first Pavlova recipe Which is Meringue Cream fruit, was basically written by Emily Futter, who grew up in um, Sydney, that, and so yeah. so it's a Sydney writer, so when you start digging back before Futter, um, and there are a couple of academics who spend a lot of time researching it, you get back to a Prussian dish, right. oh, and yeah. and really the, the earliest recipe, pavlova, exact pref, uh, pavlova recipe, is in a... German-language newspaper out of Texas. So, so you go, actually, Pavlo, Pavlova is Texan. All right, but we mentioned Hong Kong
2: there, Mikey. We, yes. We're going to start in China, aren't we? Let's get into our heroes and howlers for
1: today. And, and Matt, thank you for choosing this woman, because I've got to be honest, I had not heard of her. Um, the probably she's best known as Qingxi. Shi yes although she's also known as uh,
2: Zheng Yi Sao yeah the wife of Zheng Yi that's right yes yeah. Zheng Yi Sao but yeah in, in Chinese popular culture um, yeah she's much more Well known as Qingxi, also known
1: as the Pirate Queen. Mm. Now, but but before we get into talking about her, let's get a bit of background because she uh, she sort of happens uh, in the random well, the start of the nineteenth century,
2: and that's the Qing Dynasty. The Qing Dynasty in China, the the last imperial uh, dynasty in China. I think it's worth having a quick look before we get into her, um, just what that means, because we've touched on this a couple of times actually, Matt, in previous episodes, and. We, yeah, we always say you've got to stop thinking of China in the shape on the map that we know today, because for much of its history, it was much, much smaller. And for long periods, the South... Um, where uh, uh, Qingxi is based, yeah, all those lands below the Yangtze River, they're actually very separate to the north. yeah. And once you get your head around that, you can see that dynasties like the Qing and, and like the Yuan before them, you know, the Kublai Khan Mongols and, and that episode that we touched upon. Yeah, during that time, it wasn't actually that these northern rulers were becoming part of China. Rather, it's very much the other way around. China, usually northern China at first, but... Often the whole of China, eventually, it's a case of these Chinese lands being taken over by northern invaders and being annexed into pre-existing empires up there. And because the Qing dynasty, they are Manchus, okay? So right. they've come from Manchuria, and the Manchu dynasty starts in 1636. It's emerged from the Jianshao Jurchens, and they're Tungusic-speaking. Yeah, they're an ethnic group, there and they managed to unify all the Jurchen tribes out there to the northeast of China and they sort of meld them into this new Manchu ethnic identity. But the important thing is it's not just where Manchuria is today in northeast China, but it's also the lands above that. And they very much had their own empire, mm-hmm. and they invaded China. You know, their chieftain, Dorgan, you know, <laughs> the story goes, he marched straight through the Great Wall of China because one of the uh, Chinese generals left um, the door open. Yes, yeah, I
1: remember that
2: story. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> shut so, the bloody gate! That's right, yeah, he shut the gate, but they didn't want to shut the gate because they weren't happy with the rulers they had. He gets to Beijing by 1644, and then obviously later they expand their whole rule over the whole of China and, and, and Taiwan and, and Tibet and all these other parts, which now we consider to be or not to be part of China. Let's
1: yeah, not open uh, the door on Taiwan, mate.
2: <laughs> and yeah, you know, this lasts until 1912. It's the last imperial dynasty. But yeah, you know, like I said, yeah, you know, the Chinese don't like to admit it. But this is not the first time that China has become subservient to a greater empire from the north. I've, you know, we said. Kublai Khan—he was drawing China into the Mongol Empire, not the other way around. You know, the Chinese call it the Yuan Dynasty, but oh. it's very much really the Mongol Empire. And if you go back further, it was just the same. You know, the Chinese call it the, the Luo Dynasty after the Tang, but really mm. it's the Khitans, this another nomadic tribe from the north. It's their empire that comes to directly rule over China from the 9, 916 to 1125. And in fact, you could even say there's a fourth time because you've got the Jin Dynasty in the 12th and 13th centuries. And there again, northern invaders, they take over the whole of the north and they actually push all the Chinese down to the south into a rival dynasty, the Song dynasty, which is you know based south of the Yangtze. And Like I said, if you go there today, you can still see that ethnic and cultural um, divide you know, between, you know, between the south, between the north, with the Yangtze being a dividing line.
1: Or as Matt and I would say, uh, rice versus noodles. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, so we are talking about Qing Xing. Now, she exists during the Qing dynasty. Now, I'd not heard of her before. How did you first hear about this
0: amazing woman? Um, I, you get asked a certain question endlessly when, when you start doing media. And one of them is, who would you like for dinner? Right. Who, who's your dream? Who your dinner party guests? And you, you know, you you start with you start with living people because that's kind of easy, and then you start going, no, 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 that that's not who I want. I I want Catherine the Great because that'll be fascinating. I want mm. um, I I want Rumford. I want yes. the man who invents yeah. the who invents the the baked Alaska, um, the first well, <laughs> I one of the first people to you know, uh, the fun of the first people to freeze stuff, um, maybe bacon. Um, and then also you want you want someone who's a bit bit wild. And, yes, and she came up when I was doing some research on that. And went. This what a, what a, you know, I think didn't she grow up on she grew up on the deck of a you know of a brothel oh, yeah. what, 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 her mum was ran a brothel I think yeah so because she was born in 1775
1: now here's the thing yeah she is on one of those the, the floating brothels of Guangdong mm. but apparently she is very. Not just very skilled at her work, she's very skilled at networking A lot of her clientele mm. Mm. are really high-ranking men amongst the um, the court mm. And as such, she also becomes a really skilled business person ah. Now, in 1801, she marries the pirate leader Zhang Yi Yes Now, here's the thing about him He could trace his buccaneering ancestors I just love saying buccaneering <laughs> ancestors great name. Back to the Ming Dynasty Yeah and he, was a, he fought as a privateer alongside the Vietnamese, but he's the one who mm. sets up the Guangdong Pirate Confederation. Mm. Now, this is the fleet she's eventually going to take over. And she takes it over in 1807 when he, um, well, he falls overboard. Yeah, during he falls a t- <laughs> overboard. Oops. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. inconvenient. Yes. During a typhoon. Well, that's the thing. After he falls overboard, she marries his adopted son. Yeah, it's a bit weird. <laughs> well, well, but it actually gets even more confusing because this adopted son, who's her husband, not only was he her lover, but there's a fair chance he was also his lover as well. Ah. Now, Paul, you are much better at Orient <laughs> pronunciations than me, so I'm going to pass it over to you, Chung Po tsai uh, Chung Po Desai. Chungpo Desai. Now, now, of course, you know, Matt, as you know, he's like the figurehead of their... It's a fleet. You know, we talk about the Pirate Queen. Blackbeard, at his height, had four ships and about 240 pirates. Mm. Um, your woman, Ching Shi, she's got... 60 to 80,000 pirates. Her fleet is
2: enormous. And it's interesting you were saying about previously they'd been fighting for the Vietnamese king and the Vietnamese emperor because, yeah. like I said, in the south of China, a lot of people were still very resentful of the powers that be in the north. You know, so it wasn't unusual for southern Chinese, you know, what we now call Cantonese-speaking Chinese, to be on the opposite side to the government, if you like. Yeah.
1: Even though her, her new husband, the son of her first husband, is running, she is running everything. Mm. I love this. She, she lays down a whole bunch of rules, right? all plundered to be given to your superiors who will distribute it. Nice. Mm -hmm. Disobey once, it's a beating. Twice, it's a beheading. That sounds fair. And and it's not really plunder. The official term is now transferring shipment of goods. (laughs) This business discussion. Uh, Don't desert your post or go ashore without permission. First time, you lose your ears because you obviously haven't been listening. Second time, it's a beheading. And now, when it comes to female prisoners, any sexual assault against a female prisoner. It's a beheading. Right. However, when it comes to consensual relationships between pirates and prisoners, mm. you've got to ask the captain's permission. Mm. And if the male pirate then goes on to cheat on his new wife, it's a beheading. Mm. In fact, there's a lot of beheading going on. <laughs> she, she, um, she's she's big on beheadings. In fact, if you took an, an attack on a ship without an okay from her, mm. it's a beheading. <laughs> now, Matt, Ji-Hing yeah, These days, she's
2: featuring more and more in Chinese popular culture. How did you first come across
0: it. I'm, I'm slightly obsessed by pirates, <laughs> and, and, and it, it's pretty exciting. And, you know, the, the, I love the whole – the interesting stuff is some of the the, the more d- democratic ways that the pirate ships ran in terms of equal shares yeah, and yeah. double share for the captain and, mm. and voting captains in and out and, you know, not the sort of stuff you expect when you no. think of pirates. But I also am fascinated by, by these the power behind the throne. So yes. I'm thinking of, you know, there's a, there's a wonderful woman called Bertha Palmer, who um, husband's the richest man in Chicago he builds this massive um, hotel but she's running it when right. the hotel burns down she's the one who raises the money to rebuild the hotel she's also the one that's responsible for inventing the brownie so these women who tend to get lost in history mm. you start when you start digging you start thinking this is amazing, and you're yeah. absolutely right, the size of that navy, and that you imagine how rich those trade routes were, because, yes you know, you've got, you've got tra- trade routes from India. Uh, mm. obviously lost a lot of money, but that trade route between China and India has been yeah. massive since the first century. Well, that's
2: it, because the British East India Company, that's already, and the Portuguese, they're already in there, and that's probably one of the r- main reasons that's driving the piracy in the first place, because okay. the locals are so annoyed that you yeah. know, they're trying to, it's a good 50 years before we get to the opium wars, but already, even this early 19th century, yeah. there's a lot of antagonism against the foreign powers, isn't there?
1: And in fact, Qingxi actually wins several naval battles against the Portuguese, and they, Matt, you were talking about the business There were villages up and down the Chinese coast whose whole business model ran around providing... These
0: this pirate fleet, whole mm-hmm. whole villages, were... but that but but that's where the word buccaneer comes from. Oh, really? But, but, so the original buccaneers were guys who were, who lived on islands in the Caribbean, were shooting native pigs, and were curing the meat to supply and to vital pirate ships. Bacon, and, and, and they, they, they were and they were buccaneers. Oh, oh,
1: yeah, oh right! right. You know wow.
0: Why is it every good food history story will eventually end up at pork? Well, but but <laughs> but also isn't why is it every great history story inv- invariably ends end up, up food. talking about food? Yeah, and Exactly. Whether it's the history of slavery, the history of everything, it's all, you know, yep. we start with salt. Yes. That's yep. so massive.
2: We oh. did a whole episode on salt. Mark like
0: Zelensky, what a great book. Uh, actually, I'm glad. Yeah, it's a fabulous
1: book. But I'm glad you mentioned salt because that c- comes up. The next part of her story, 1810, mm-hmm. the, the Qing can't handle her anymore. Uh, the British can't handle her. So she actually negotiates a, sur- a surrender to the Chinese emperor. And at the time she surrenders, she's personally and immediately in command of some 24 ships, but there's more in the fleet. But here's the thing. She's so powerful. She's told, look, just keep everything. Don't cause any more trouble. <laughs> right. <laughs> so she sort of retires, and she goes to—well, it gets a bit foggy. But by right about 1822, she's in Macau. Mm. And she gets involved in the salt trade. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, too, and I didn't realise this, that the salt trade was the major sort of smuggling enterprise in China for centuries. In fact, it would take Mao to finally curtail it. In fact, there
0: was still salt smuggling going on in communist China up until the 1990s. So, question, is that... The smuggling of salt, or is that smuggling stuff buried in the salt? It's the smuggling of salt. Yeah,
2: they actually needed the salt. A lot of it would come over the mountains from Burma. I know there were two land routes. There was the the old horse road, which they said a lot of salt used to come on um, as well from Southeast Asia. Um, Because it it was such an important staple, as we said in our episode, until everyone realized that we're actually all standing on salt and it's got to find it. Everyone thought it was only to be found in mines and therefore very, very valuable.
0: Sure, and hence why salt gives us words like salary and hallmark. Yes, that's right. But it wasn't just the salt trade she she got involved in.
1: She fell back on some of her old business dealings. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) She opened a tea house, which is lovely. She opened a gambling den and several brothels. And she dies peacefully
0: at the age of sixty nine. Yeah, she has a happy ending, doesn't she, Mike? Very happy ending. It's so surrounded by <laughs> loved ones. But but isn't but isn't that great? Because there's so so many of these Big figures. Mm. It, they yeah. go badly. The, they either end up in penury or they end up being offed by one of their rivals. It's great that she she gets old. She's she's surrounded by everything. It's developed. also interesting that all the
2: male pirates seem to come to a sticky end. But, yeah, mm. this female pirate, well. probably the best, uh, most successful
1: female pirate ever Oh, in no, history. no, no. The best pirate of all time. She, she nego- she's a great negotiator. Mm. She negotiates the deal with the Qing. She negotiates with the Portuguese, with the British. But here's the thing, too. As I said at the end, she's surrounded by her family. This is just a bit of a (laughs) rumour. But I'm going to leave us with this. There are still stories today that a lot of the nefarious affairs that happen on Macau are being run by her descendants. No. No. Hi, right, folks, you're listening to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. Our special guest today is the wonderful Matt Preston. Matt, thank you so much
0: for coming in. Thank you. No, I can't think of anything more fun than talking history. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm surrounded by one really bright person and Mikey Robbins, which <laughs> Yes, is a, is a dream combination.
1: I think see, you know how
0: the show works. Yeah, absolutely. I love it's, it's that. perfect.
1: Yeah, I'm enthusiastic and Paul's right.
0: That's right. But well, enthusiasm goes a long way. That's it.
1: Speaking of which, now, there will be howlers in this story. But the central character in the next tale we're about to tell is once again someone I hadn't heard of before. And so when you suggested it, I went off and read about him. And what a fascinating character. His name is, well, he becomes Major General Smedley Butler. That's right. And he's not necessarily
2: a howler, as you say, Mikey, but he, he's a, well, a forgotten man of history. But since the 6th of January last
0: year, maybe a few more people should know about him. Yeah, So, how did you first come across Major General Smedley Butler? Uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of a lot of discussion about the power behind the presidency mm. and um, the storming democracy. of the Congress as well, of course. Congress and and when you and you start going, well, at what point? At what point do the super wealthy um, start to yeah. want to influence in more than just ways of paying lobbying? And mm. there've been, you know, we know that America is built by some very very rich oligarchs mm-hmm. um, and up comes this name and this idea that the, that we're wealthy wealthier ganging up together in order to, um, in order to maybe, impose their own uh, puppet leader, a uh, dictator. Which goes down in history as? As the business plot, Mm. also known as the
1: Wall Street Pushed, which I kind of like. So I think we should get a little little bit of background on Smedley. Smedley Butler, he's born in 1881 to Mm. a prominent Quaker family, and his parents are actually Republicans, and his grandfather's a a Republican congressman. But here's the thing. Against his family's wishes, and and obviously his father's pacifist ideals, Mm. he joins the Marines. He lies about his age to get into the Marines, and he goes off and serves in the Spanish-American War. He then goes on to fight, not just in that war, but also the Philippines-American War. Back to China, he's involved in the Boxer Rebellion. Right. And we were talking about food and history, Matt. Mm -hmm. He was also involved in a bunch of so-called police actions in Central America and the Caribbean. Now, let's be honest, the main purpose of these police actions was to take care of the interests of the United Fruit Company. We love the United (laughs) Fruit Company. (laughs) And as such, they're known to this day as the Banana Wars. That's the Banana Wars. He fights the uh, Mexican Revolution as well as World War I by his death in 1940. He'd become the most decorated Marine in U.S. history.
2: And I think it's fair to point out at this stage, Maggie, in this plot, he's not really one of the plotters. He is actually a good guy, and he has been decorated
1: as such. Yes, but I, I want to get back to a little bit of what he did before. He's, he's got some good nicknames, Matt. The Fighting Hell Devil. Yes. The, the Fighting Quaker. And Old Gimlet Eye. <laughs> now, this comes back from the, when he's fighting in Grenada, and he had malaria. Right. And he was living on lime juice right. and, 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 and quinine. Mm. And, of course, now these days a gimlet is a, a, a gin-based cocktail.
0: Yep. Mm. D- gin and lime.
1: And which brings me to the next point about old old Smedley. He liked to drink, didn't well, he? Well, he liked a bit of a drink, but he becomes a prohibitionist. In fact, ah. he ends up in Philadelphia where he becomes sort of like the director of public safety. and He, de- he declares war on speakeasies. Mm. Yeah, he's a bit of a shoot first ask questions later kind of guy <laughs> literally yes yeah, so he actually said I don't believe there's a single bandit notch on a policeman's gun go out and get some mm. <laughs> now during his time some praised his work but there was a whole bunch of problems about civil rights he, mm. you know, he had road rock set up but I think he loved a checkpoint loved a checkpoint I <laughs> <laughs> think too which sort of got him out of favour with the Philadelphian elite he loved going on the radio right and he loved a bit of a swear ah uh-huh. Well, I suppose that's what he made his name with his talks, didn't he? Well, yes, exactly. And in fact, it's one of his talks that gets him into trouble next—the Mussolini case. Now, this is really important because because he does get involved with the fascists. We'll get to them. Mm. Yes. So people accuse him of being a fascist. He's not. Now he's giving a speech in January 1931, and he's telling an anecdote about a friend of his who may or may or not have been Cornelius Vanderbilt. Mm. And he's in Italy, and Mussolini is taking him on a high speed you know, automobile tour of the countryside. And they run over a small child and kill it. And Mussolini put his hand on my friend's mm. knee, says Smedley He said, it was only one life. What is one life in the affairs of state? Mm. Now Butler was telling this story about, you know, how much he didn't like Mussolini and blah, blah, blah. It gets back to Mussolini. Mussolini's mm. not happy. Mm. Mussolini kicks up a stink. <laughs> the the Italian government's incensed. Newspapers in Rome attack him. And in fact he gets arrested by President Hoover. Ah. And put under house arrest. On behalf of Mussolini? On behalf of Mussolini. It all sort of falls apart. He puts out a sort of half-felt apology. But he he still maintains that the Mussolini affair was the thing that killed his political life. Right. Mm. And then he gets involved in these anti-war lectures and the bonuses for veterans, which is where our howlers come in. Remember there was that camp of veterans in Washington that Hoover had MacArthur? Yes. Mm. Well, he was there. He was there. He was a big one for what was known as, as, as the Bonus Army, which was a whole bunch of veterans who wanted bonuses. <laughs> now, this is when he comes in, to, comes across the two baddies Jerry Maguire. Yes, Jerry Maguire. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and, and Bill Doyle. Now, now, Maguire was himself a, a, Wo- a World War I uh, veteran. He was the commander of the American League Connecticut Division. Now, the, the American League was the ex soldiers. So they go in to recruit your man, Butler. At the start, Butler thinks they just want to take on veterans' rights. Hmm. But Maguire, well, he's disguising his intentions because, well, he showed Butler a bank statement of $100,000, around about $2 bucks today. Mm. He said he could use to bring veterans' rights to a convention in Chicago. Now, who's doing this money? Mm-mm. Now, in following meetings with your man, Butler, and um, Mac- Jerry Maguire and Bill Doyle, the focus of these meetings starts to shift away from veterans' rights to a very anti-Franklin Delano Roosevelt.
2: Yeah, anti-FDR, that's right. Very,
1: very anti-FDR, and particularly the New Deal and politics. And that's when it happens. Butler realizes that they want him to lead an army of veterans as a a coup d'etat and overtake the White House. And this is what's known as the business plot.
2: And as you said, Mikey, behind this, who's putting that money up? Oh, and that's the key, isn't
0: it? Some of those powerful and rich families yeah, in America. Yeah, it, 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 it's all those. It's it's effectively it's what we were talking about today. It's big farmer, It's big manufacturing. Mm. It's um, you know, Singer
2: sewing machines. I think were involved. Or, yeah,
0: uh, you, you, the guy was running. And also, two the Duponts were probably involved.
1: DuPont, yep. Uh, Remington rifles were probably involved as well in the in this business plot. But there's there's one quote of Butler's I like, when he figures out that you know what they want to do is 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 bring the, oh, bring these people in. I should point out too that McGuire had actually been. In Europe, and he wasn't that fond of the Italian or German fascists because a big fan of the French fascists. Okay, the, the Croix de, oh, you know my French, C R O I X D F E U. Croix de fer, yeah. Croix
0: de fer, there we go. The cross the cross, of, cross fire. of fire,
1: yeah, there you go. Well done, Matt. Once again, my year seven public school <laughs> French lets me down. Well, they were a proto-fascist group in uh, in France during mm. the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. So he's a fan of this. But I love this. When Butler figures out what's going on, he turns to them and goes, "If you get five hundred thousand soldiers advocating for anything smelling of fascism, I'm going to get five hundred thousand more and lick the hell out of you." <laughs> good, good man. <laughs> He's a good man. <laughs> and um, so he he then goes to the FBI. Mm. Um, it ends up in the papers. There's an inquiry. But Matt, as you were saying before,
0: there's so much vested interest, you know, behind these nut jobs. It just sort of fades away. But I, th- I think this is... A, I mean, that's the great thing about history is that, you know, really there's nothing new and you start seeing echoes in other stuff we see yeah. today. And it's the same with... It's the same we are looking at the, uh, uh, the Chinese history. Mm. You know, you, 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 you learn so much about potentially how things are going and, you know, we 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 need to ask those questions mm. the united fruit company you know hello
1: correct me if i'm wrong but godfather 2 at the scene where they're passing the gold telephone around mm. on the on the
0: table in, in, in havana the united fruit company is present that's right that's right and and that that whole thing about um the thing about fighting agrarian rights and yeah. and re- because again the you know it's this it's the fabulously wealthy wanting to hang on and to their money but even better to make way more Mm. Um, yes, And it's, you know, when we, we sort of see a little bit of that coming through with some of the lobbying shenanigans mm. that we see mm. even nowadays in Washington. Mm. And, and the other thing too is, and we've spoken about this before, is that, you know, when we are
1: thinking about the 1920s and 1930s, we always think of, you know, German and Italian fascist, mm. maybe Mosley, and if you're Australian, maybe the New Guard, mm. but pretty much every Western democracy mm. had some fascist group a going fascist on.
2: movement, Yeah. Mm
1: the kiwis
2: yeah that's true no the new zealand were apparently (laughs) weren't weren't very keen no they they
1: had a couple of nut jobs but they never got organized
2: but as we said in that app ep- earlier on, didn't we, Maggie? Yeah, in America, there really was a strong right wing presence. Yeah, obviously, you've got the Ku Klux Klan, you've got the, the, uh, the National Rifle Association as well. Which um, The links between the, th- the three points in that triangle are, are, are quite
1: easy to trace. And as you were saying at the start, too, Matt, it was that whole thing about these, these far right wingers trying to get public identities on board. I mean, apart from Butler, who was by this stage a military hero, Charles Lindbergh gets involved, yeah. makes a
0: few statements he would regret, a few ill advised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, let's be kind and leave it at that. Oh, I think I think it's that thing, isn't it? When they have the committee meeting and they they investigate this, and people just go, "That could never happen I, 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 here." But in your opinion,
2: Matt, what was it that really highlighted it for you that this was such an important, you know, ending, as it were?
0: Well, I, th- I think it's this idea that that it's such a ridiculous, over-the-top Hollywood fantasy story mm. that everyone at the time just went, "That cannot." Be the case, and there's a you know the the, the McCoy Dickstein committee yeah. actually researched this. They went out and and their their rule the line was there is no question that these attempts were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- so at that time, people just did not believe it. But it's you know now we know that it was happening and these things were coming to pass. And it's a it's a wise reminder that sometimes and look, I'm no conspiracy theorist. But sometimes ridiculous ideas sometimes maybe need to be looked at a little bit more closely. Or if I could be a little more shallow, keep an eye on the right wing nut jobs and the very, very wealthy. All right, folks, so there you go. Any
2: questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, whichever
1: you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at TheRestIsHist. The hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, keep it all coming. Lots of fun. And lots of maps <laughs> And lots of new guests to look forward to. Paulie, we've got guests galore, each with their very own hero and howler. In the next episode we talk to author, historian, social media sensation Esme Louise James about sword fighting, opera, sexuality and one of ancient Greece's weirdest philosophers.